Well, we are picking up uh, the book of Acts. We went through the first seven chapters, and uh, uh, then last week I did a little kind of review, a little bit of a preview, but more review than anything else. And today we're going to pick up with chapter uh, 8. And uh, I want you to know that um, this is going to be another one of those kind of sermons where uh, there's not like a verse-by-verse great application for us. We're going to kind of go through and do kind of an ESPN play-by-play of uh, what happened. And then when we get through with that, I think there are some really important applications for us. So we'll talk about those at the end and how we can apply some principles we've seen uh, in this historical event that we see take place today, how we can apply them in our lives and in our church and uh, always remember them. So let's get started and talk about uh, this particular thing. Today we're going to talk about the Samaritans and how they received the gospel. Now if you remember in the first seven chapters, all of the ministry that took place was in the city of Jerusalem. The apostles were there, the disciples were there. And by the way, uh, don't forget this switch took place. Uh, uh, in the, uh, some of the um, gospels, uh, the word disciple was used, uh, I kind of use it sometimes as big D, little d. Uh, the big D disciples were the twelve. Uh, they were kind of the first followers of Jesus, and they were called disciples in many of the gospels. Uh, but now there's a switch that's taken place. They have received an apostleship from Jesus. And so now these men are apostles, these twelve. And the, people, the other people that are following Jesus are now disciples. So that, it's important you understand that that uh, verbiage kind of switched a little bit there. Uh, but what we're going to see here is that all of the ministry that's taken place in Jerusalem is now going to start spreading out. We talked last week about the three ways that the church grows and the three um, growth reports in the book of Acts. The church grows numerically, the church grows spiritually, and the church grow, grow, grows geographically. And so um, keep those in mind, and let's just begin and look at how the Samaritans received the gospel. In the beginning of chapter 8, there are just kind of some uh, one-verse, one-sentence uh, uh, truths that are being taught here, uh, facts that are being shared here. We want to see those, but then we'll get into kind of more of the meat of it uh, past verse 3. But let's take a look. The first thing we see is that believers are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Believers are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Look what it says in verse 1. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen, the first martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the twelve apostles stayed in Jerusalem. The rest of the disciples were spread out uh, through Judea and Samaria. Uh, Now what does that look like? Uh, let's take a look right here. We see here, here's the city of Jerusalem, and I know this writing is not very good. The city of Jerusalem is right here. That area all here in the kind of the light yellow is Judea, and then the area right above that in blue is Samaria. We'll talk more about the Samaritans here in a few minutes. Uh, but I want you to understand uh, if you kind of go, wow, I've, I've heard of Judea and Samaria somewhere before. Where was that? If you remember, key verse in Acts, Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world or the ends of the earth, depending on your translation. And so he gives these three steps to how they're going to be his, his uh, disciples and his witnesses. We've already seen it happen in Jerusalem. Now they're spreading out through Judea and Samaria. After this, we see that Stephen was greatly honored at his funeral. In verse 2, It says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. 
Now what that means is Stephen was given an incredibly honorable funeral. This man was the very first martyr to die for the cause of Christ. And men took his body and they buried him and they gave him an incredibly honorable burial. When it said they made lamentation over him, they wailed over him. Uh, they, they couldn't believe it. Uh, after Jesus' death, now here another one goes. And by the way, if you remember who uh, Stephen was, he was the first man listed in that list of uh, uh, men that we would call today deacons that were chosen to serve the body. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a, a leader in a sense. He was, he was a deacon. He was a servant. He was a servant leader. But it, it hit the church hard when he died or when he was killed. It hit them hard. And so they had this incredible funeral, and Stephen was given the honor he deserved both in this life and in the next. What happens after this? Saul persecutes the church. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. <coughs> Now, that doesn't really sound like much. Okay, Saul persecuted some guys, and he went house to house, and he put some people in prison. But the Scripture is really much more colorful than that. This word ravaged is the same word that comes from an animal tearing up another animal, getting ready to eat it. He was ravaging the church. He was, he was tearing the church apart piece by piece. He was, he was committing great atrocities of violence against the church. I can't really say that without grading. I mean, he just, he ravaged the church. And the other thing that I want you to see in this is that uh, when it says he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, that's no little statement there. That's no little statement. In this day and time, it was almost unheard of to take women captive as political prisoners or as, uh, uh, you know, heretics or however he uh, wanted to brand them in a sense and so he not only took the men but he took the women they're mothers of children so what we're going to put them in prison and by the way the majority of the people that were put in prison weren't put in there like hey i'm going to put them in prison for three months they were put in there until they killed them most of them were martyred uh, they did not have uh, ginormous prisons where they kept people for the rest of their lives. And there were three, four, five thousand people in prison for the rest of their lives. They put them in prison for a time, and when the prison got full, they, they emptied it out by killing those that were in it to make room for others. And so I want you to understand that this persecution, uh, when we watch some of these Bible movies on television, the persecution looks bad, but it was really bad. I mean, it was, it was bad. Saul was doing something to the church um, that was just profound and deeply evil. And then we see that Philip goes and preaches in Samaria. Look at verses 4 through 8. So as he is uh, run out of town of Jerusalem, as this persecution begins to rise, here's what Philip does. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was much joy in that city. Now, as you uh, do a little study and a little history on this city of Samaria, uh, some scholars say there was an actual city of Samaria in the Samarian region. Others say no, that's to describe an incredibly large city in the area of Samaria that really didn't have a name or we don't know its name. It doesn't make any difference. Okay, that's not really the point uh, the, that the passage is talking about. Uh, what we're seeing here is that Philip went to preach to the Samaritans. Now, let's talk about the Samaritans for a minute. Uh, that area in the north, Samaria, uh, was an area that um, uh, when, when Israel divided from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, in about 800 B.C., the northern kingdom was overtaken by Assyria. And what Assyria did was they wanted to breed out the Jews. <coughs> and so they brought in people from pagan nations to interact with the Jews. Uh, they divided up some of the Jewish families. Uh, they began to marry, intermingle, and intermarry. And what happened was the uh, southern kingdom began to view the northern kingdom as these kind of, uh, 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 you know, there's no other way to say it, but these kind of half-breed, uh, gross derelicts who, who had uh, given themselves over to pagan religions and intermixed pagan religions with the biblical uh, worship of the true God. These were the scummiest, dirtiest, most awful people on the planet to the Jews. If you remember two stories in the Gospels where Jesus went and he talked to the uh, Samaritan woman by the well and the apostles were astounded. Why in the world would Jesus talk to the Samaritan woman? Much, I mean, a woman, much less a Samaritan, a woman. And then we see uh, the story that Jesus tells, the parable that Jesus tells about the uh, uh, Samaritan, the good Samaritan on the road who help, is the only one to help his brother, his neighbor. And so we see these two stories about the Samaritans. It's always understood that these are, the, these are the outcasts of society, according to the Jews. And now Philip is going to go preach to them. Now, I was thinking about this. Think about the night before they all left and scattered about. So they're all sitting around there in Jerusalem, and they're saying, hey, hey guys, we've got to get out of this town. The persecution is coming up. Uh, they've already killed... Uh, uh, Stephen, uh, we're going to be next if we don't get out of town. We've got to get out. Where are we going to go? And they begin to tell where they're going to move to, where they're going to go to as they preach. And Philip says, I think I'm going to go to Samaria. And it's kind of like one of those moments where everybody goes, huh? What? Why would you go to them? I mean, these people don't even deserve to hear the gospel. These are the scum of the earth. Why would you even go there and talk? I mean, I can just hear the conversation. And yet that's who he chooses or God leads him to go and preach to. They don't even deserve to hear about the Christ. And yet Philip goes there. After this, we see as Philip preaches. Oh, before you go, actually, before they go, I want to make one more comment there. In that passage, one of the things that you see is uh, Philip is doing two things. He's preaching and God is using him to do extraordinary miracles in front of the people. And wh- how does it affect the city? Did you notice in that passage how it affected the whole city? Not just those who believed. It said, and great joy came to the whole city. Folks, what we see there is the presence and the power of God had so infiltrated this city. Uh, so many people had been converted to Christianity. So many people had been, uh, begun to follow Jesus and given him their whole lives. That joy came to the whole city. Wouldn't it be awesome 
at some point, someday, if Parkville or Kansas City was a city that people talked about because of the great joy in the city. Oh, they talk about our great barbecue, and we do have great barbecue. But wouldn't it be great if, if people began to talk about Kansas City and said, man, there's something going on in that city. Uh, people are, are, are just, they're loving each other, they're loving God. There's something about, they're just all, they're all joyful. I mean, they're going through terrible uh, circumstances. Some of them lost their jobs. Some of them have lost uh, family members. Some of them have heard bad news from the doctor. Some of them have heard, they're going through all different kinds of things that we're going through, but they're just so joyful. Wouldn't that be incredible? That's what people were saying about this city in Samaria. This wonderful joy had overtaken them. And then look what happens as Philip preaches. Simon attain popularity because of his magic. Philip's going to run into this guy, Simon. They're going to have a little exchange here. Look what it says in the scripture. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, this word magic that's used here uh, can be used for both the word illusionist, like you'd go to a magician and see him Branson. It can also be used for the word sorcery. Uh, It looks like, uh, probably, uh, he's just an illusionist. This guy's just got his own show in Samaria, you know? He's probably got a 300-seat theater and you know, people pay, I don't know how much bucks. You know, but he's amazing them with his magic. He's doing these magical things, and they're being amazed. And he says, why is he doing that? Well, to be popular. He, he likes the fact that they're all amazed by what he's doing. You know, everybody in the city is like, man, you've got to see this guy, Simon. When you come to Samaria, you've got to see this guy, Simon. He's amazing. He's probably got a big, you know, giant sign out in front of his theater that says, The Amazing Simon. And people are just, are just totally knocked out by this guy. They think he's the coolest. He is the, he's just awesome because he's able to do these incredible uh, feats of magic and blow their minds. What happens after this? Well, many are converted through the preaching of Philip, including, including this guy Simon, the magician. Look what it says. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. You see, uh, before Philip got to town, everybody was amazed by Simon because he did all these wonderful tricks. He did all these wonderful illusions. He probably uh, cut ladies in half and made elephants disappear and did all the big tricks that all the big magicians do. But when Philip came to town and preached the good news of Jesus Christ, he preached that Jesus uh, was crucified, died, was buried, and resurrected on the third day to pay for the sins of mankind. As uh, Simon heard that message from Philip, the scriptures say he believed. And people were getting baptized. Both men and women were getting baptized. And it said that Simon also got baptized. Simon also got baptized. And then it said, if you notice in that passage, 
he began to follow Philip. Did you see that? He became part of Philip's entourage. So as Philip continued to go from place to place in that town, Philip just kind of hung out with him. It's like, man, I, I want to I stand next to this guy. I want to see what this guy is going to do next. This guy is amazing. He's doing all these incredible things. People are being healed. People who are lame, who've never walked, are, are, being able, to, are able to walk. People who've been paralyzed by an accident or, or some disease are now walking. They're not paralyzed anymore. And even uh, people with unclean spirits, even people who are demonically uh, uh, either oppressed or possessed, uh, these demons are coming out of them because of Philip's teaching about the gospel. He is truly the amazing Philip, by far. Way more amazing than the amazing Simon. And so Simon is following him and part of his entourage. Then we see that the apostles came from Jerusalem because the new converts had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verses 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now I know some of you are immediately going, Huh? What? These people had... had decided to follow Jesus. These people were born again. They were, they were following Jesus. They'd even begun to be obedient to Jesus by being baptized. And yet they had not received the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a little different than what we think and what we teach here, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, there are numerous places in the scriptures where the Bible teaches when a person is born again, when they receive Christ as their Savior, they immediately receive the Holy Spirit as part of that whole interchange. Why is it different here? That's a great question. That is a great, why has it happened different this place? This happened one other time we've already read about in the book of Acts. Do you remember? Where was it where we had a group of believers that were already following Jesus, who were already committed their lives to Jesus, who had already uh, given everything to Jesus, and yet they had not received the Holy Spirit? Where was it? It was in Jerusalem before the Holy Spirit came. Well, now that's a little bit different because the Holy Spirit hadn't ever come. I mean, the Holy Spirit had been around, certainly in the Old Testament, but he had never indwelt uh, uh, people, uh, never lived inside of people. Uh, so why are these two times different? Guys, you've got to go back to Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 tells us so much about the entire book of Acts. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. We're going to see that this happens three times in the book of Acts. Guess where it happens? It happens in Jerusalem. Now it's happened in Samaria. And it's going to happen one more time. When a group of people have given their lives to Jesus, they are followers of Jesus, but they receive the Holy Spirit afterwards. And that's a bunch of Gentiles, the uttermost parts of the world, those that represent uh, the rest of the world. We'll see that in a few weeks. And so this is not a normative thing. This is not a normative thing where people uh, receive Christ as their Savior but do not have the Spirit. It was specifically done three times so that God could be showing the early church, look guys, the Holy Spirit's not just for the apostles. The Holy Spirit's not just for the leaders. The Holy Spirit's not just for those leading the church and writing the New Testament. 
The Holy Spirit is for them in Jerusalem. And then as the gospel spreads out through Judea and Samaria, it's for them. He's for them. And then as it spreads, as we see Paul's missionary journeys, and it spreads to those who are Gentiles, who are the farthest from God, it happens again. And so this is not a normative way that things happen, but it is a way that it happened here, so that we could understand that the Holy Spirit was fulfilling Acts 1.8. Then we see that Simon asked to purchase the power of the apostles. Now, you don't have to be a Bible student to know this is not going to go well, right? <laughs> I mean, just reading that on the screen, uh, uh, Simon asked to purchase the power of the apostles, the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's just not going to go well for Simon. Look what it says in verses 18 and 19. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Man, I wish you wouldn't have said that, Simon. That's not going to go well. Listen, this is a selfish act. This is an act of, of nothing but me, myself, and I. We don't hear anything. I'm going to leave that up there for a minute. In his words, we don't see anything about, give me this power so that I can also encourage the body of Christ. Give me this power so that I can help others fulfill uh, uh, their purpose in Christ. We don't see anything in this except, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's all about him. He's saying, listen, I've done some tricks in my day, but this is cool. This is, way, this is way beyond sawing a lady in half. These guys have just laid their hands on somebody, and the Holy Spirit of God has entered their body. That is incredible. Way more impressive than anything Simon has ever come up with as an illusionist. So he asked to purchase the power of the apostles, the ability to give the Holy Spirit to others. Oh boy. And Peter's there, the shy, somewhat inward Peter, who always holds back. No, Peter always gives it straight, doesn't he? And so he rebukes Simon and he exposes his motive. Look what he said to him. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And I'm going to leave those words there for a minute, too. First, Peter says to him, you know, you might as well just, really, what he's saying is, you might as well just go straight to hell with your money. For you've tried to buy God with your checkbook. You can't do that. He's saying, listen, man, even for thinking that, you should repent. And then Peter uh, exposes his motive when he says, 
you are filled with the bitterness, the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. You are committing sins, and you won't forgive others. And now you want to buy the ability to share the Spirit of God with others? Man, your heart is deep and dark. And Simon is put on the spot. Peter tells him what to do. Let's see, I think it's in the passage before, or the, uh, where does he say that? Look what he says. He gives him instructions. He says, repent, turn away from your sinfulness, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray for the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He's saying, listen man, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You pray to God and you say, God, I'm going to turn away from my sin. I'm, I'm sorry I did that. I'm turning away from my sinfulness and I'm begging your forgiveness. But Simon doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't pray. He doesn't even speak to God. He says, well, why don't you do that for me? Look what he says. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You do it for me. Folks, I can't do that for you. No leader, no spiritual leader in your life can do that for you. That's something a person has to do for themselves. You cannot cry out to another person and say, please ask God on my behalf to save me, to not hold these wicked things that I've done against me. It's useless. Peter told him, you pray to God. You go to God. You ask God to forgive you and repent of your sins. But he didn't do that. Now, not always, but usually uh, in the scriptures when there's an interaction like this and we never hear of somebody again, they didn't do the right thing. When they choose rightly, we usually see them later in another book or, or commented to, you know, maybe we'd see in, in some other passage where uh, Simon was now, you know, hanging out with the apostles or something. We don't, we don't ever hear about Simon again. And so probably this is the end of Simon. He doesn't change his ways. He doesn't repent from his sins. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. And he goes on his way. The last thing I want you to see in this passage today is the apostles returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Look what it says in verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so what it's saying here is as they went back to Jerusalem, every time they went through a little town or a village, they preached the gospel. They preached the gospel. Every time they went through another group of people, they preached the gospel. Probably as they walked past anybody going the opposite direction on the street, they preached the gospel to them. So the apostles are now all back in Jerusalem, and Philip is still preaching the gospel in Samaria, seeing that God is using him in a great way. So some really good thoughts there, some really good lessons there, but I want us to look at three things. Uh, to take away from this passage today. What are three things that, that we should take away and say, here's what I see how we should live out and, and some, some applications for us. The first one is, all believers should preach the gospel. Think about this. Philip was not an elder in a church. He was not a pastor. Uh, Philip was not a leader in the body of Christ, except a servant leader. He was a deacon. He had been set aside 
uh, to serve tables, to wait on tables, to make sure that uh, widows were fed. He was a a servant of God. But when it came time for them to be uh, pushed out of Jerusalem, he went about doing what? Getting another job? Serving in some local... No, he went out preaching. Folks, the reality is all of the disciples, and the implication is, all of the disciples that were pushed out of Jerusalem into all of Judea and all of Samaria were preaching the gospel. Every one of them. Folks, I think that's a challenge for us. Now, I'm not saying, you know, quit your job and just start preaching the gospel everywhere. Though we don't see Philip as the kind of guy that said, you know, I would, I would tell people in this town about Jesus, but I might get made fun of. I might be... Uh, uh, they might scold me. In fact, he just probably witnessed... You remember, uh, uh, Philip and Stephen were the first two guys to be chosen in that list of guys that were chosen to serve the body. He probably just witnessed his friend Stephen being martyred. And what did Philip do? Did he go out and say, man, I, whew, I don't want to wind up like Stephen. No, he did the opposite. He said, fine, I'm going to go preach the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. Folks, we got to get that. We just got to get that. We got to get the fact that God wants to use us to bring the gospel to the people around us, and we have to let the chips fall where they may. Yes, some of you will be made fun of. Yes, some of you may cause problems in your family. Yes, some of you may even lose your jobs. The time may come when we will be persecuted for our faith. But in this moment of history, folks, here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, it was clear who the real followers of Jesus were and who the real ones weren't. I think we're going to find that out soon. Who are the people really following Jesus and who are, those one, who are the ones pretending? Second thing I think we see there is there are no barriers of race, ethnicity, or gender when it comes to access to Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Philip went to the lowliest scum of the earth in their opinion. And he shared the gospel with them. He shared with them the love of Jesus. He went to them and he told them, look, God loves you and I love you. In fact, God loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. And while maybe, maybe his Christian brothers and sisters were like, wow, what is that guy doing? Why did he go to them? He was out there sharing with those, the least of these. Folks, we have to be careful here at Fellowship of Grace. I think we're good at this, but I think we have to be careful and always look at these examples that we don't ever become exclusive, that everybody in our church begins to look the same, that everybody in our church is a a middle, middle upper class Caucasian with 2.3 kids who's educated, has a home and two cars, and we all kind of look the same. We've got to be careful that our church never becomes a church with a type. Well, I take that back. We need to be a church with one type of people, sinners. We're a church for those who have acknowledged that they're sinners. And that door is open to everybody who fits that category. We just have to be careful, folks. Listen, I know... I know that it is a human instinct uh, to, to gravitate towards people like us. I get that. I understand that. I've been a human for a lot of years now. But we just have to be careful. We have to be careful. 
that that doesn't creep into our spiritual thinking. When somebody walks through that door who's very unlike us, or very unlike you, or very unlike me, I don't want to assume that you and I are very much alike, okay? We love them. We care for them. They're welcome here. Uh, uh, We express to them that God loves them, and we love them too. And we want them to be a part of us. Let's never forget that. I think it's a great lesson from Philip. The last thing I want you to take away from this today is that the Spirit and the gifts of God are only experienced by true believers, not imposters. Not imposters. If Simon doesn't repent and turn to the true God through his son Jesus Christ, Simon will never experience the true gifts and Spirit of God. Oh, Simon said, I'm one of you. Simon got baptized, right? We saw that. Does that mean his heart had changed? Not necessarily. In fact, Peter said, no, your heart hasn't changed at all. It's still been about you. Now listen, people follow Jesus or say they follow Jesus for a lot of reasons in our culture. Some people say they follow Jesus because their family expects it of them. Some people follow Jesus because their, their spouse or their girlfriend or boyfriend expects it of them. Some people follow Jesus because something in their culture or, or their friends expect it of them. I remember in youth camp, uh, when I went to youth camp for several years as a young person, I don't think there was ever a situation where one friend received Christ as their Savior. It was always in groups. Oh, my friend did, my friend did. Oh, all my five, my five friends did. I always wondered if all of them really did that or not, or if they were just kind of following the pack, following the crowd. Now, I don't want to be the kind of guy that uh, uh, constantly puts uh, thoughts of doubt into your mind of where you stand with Jesus. But folks, if the, if the gifts of God and the Spirit of God are not in you, you might want to just take some time to reflect if God has not really made a change in your heart and your life, if you're still doing all the things you did before and believing all the things you did before and acting all the ways you did before and thinking all the things you did before, you might want to just stop and reflect. Am I truly a believer whom the Spirit indwells or is it possible that I be an imposter, maybe even like Simon. We see no one in the New Testament who had a true uh, experience with Jesus Christ whose life was not radically changed. Folks, God always radically changes our life when we let him. Always. So think about that, consider that, and, and when you, if you get to a place where you're like, yes, it's evident that God has changed uh, my thinking, my behavior. I'm not perfect. I still uh, do stupid things. Uh, even the Apostle Paul said, uh, it seems like everything I want to do, I never seem to do. And all the things I don't want to do, I always seem to be doing. Okay? So, so, you know, don't beat yourself up because you're not perfect. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, is there evidence? Is there some evidence that your life is different from the inside because you have had an interaction with Jesus Christ? That's the question. So think on that. And by the way, if you come to the realization 
that maybe, maybe your life has not really changed. Maybe your life isn't really different. Uh, take Peter's advice. Take Peter's advice. Pray to God. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. And turn to Christ. And say, Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't do anything about my sin on my own. But I see what Jesus did on the cross to pay for my sins. And I accept that. I receive that as a gift. Knowing that I can't do anything other than to accept what he has already done. And I give my life to you. And I ask you to come in and fill me and change me. If Simon had just done that, Simon could have been the next Philip. But we never hear of him again. I don't want your life to be the kind of life that spiritually we never hear from you again. I want you to reach your potential in Jesus, but you can only do that connected to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage that teaches us many things, but God, when we look at these three takeaways, I pray that you'll help us. Help us to really share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, those whom we know, those those whom we don't know. Father, help us to not be afraid. Help us to be like Philip, and and, and even after seeing his friend uh, killed, he went ahead to talk about you constantly. Father, help us to share the gospel with those around us. God, help us individually and help us as a church to never put up barriers for people to to come to the cross, to come to know you. Help us be accepting of all people. Yes, we expect you to change their lives. Yes, we expect you to do great miracles in their lives and change them. But Father, when they walk through that door, no matter uh, what race, ethnicity, gender, uh, financial situation, uh, geographical area they live in, in the city, Father, help us to be loving and kind and share them with them the gospel. And then, Father, help us to occasionally take a look at ourselves and just really stop and say, is it evident? Is it truly evident that the Holy Spirit is in me? Is it truly evident that God has radically changed my life? Or am I just going through the motions? Am I just being an imposter for whatever reason? God, help people in our church not to just go through the motions and to be surprised on the day they face Jesus. Father, help us to really look at our lives. And if we are not right with you, God, help us to get right with you, whether it's by salvation or repentance of our sins. Father, thank you for the principles that you teach us. Thank you for loving us no matter where we're at. Thank you for loving us and accepting us and wanting to impact our lives. Help us radically impact our city and our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.